This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is brought to you by Solarius, an innovative new project that uses blockchain technology to empower hundreds of artists and writers to come together and build a collaborative science fiction world. Learn more over at solarius.network. So that's C-E-L-L-A-R-I-U-S dot network. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 310 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Paul Melko. He's the author of the novels Singularity's Ring, The Walls of the Universe, and The Broken Universe, and his work has been nominated for the Sturgeon, Nebula, and Hugo Awards. And we'll be speaking with him today about his short story collection Ten Sigmas and Other Unlikelihoods from Fairwood Press. And today's show is brought to you by Solarius, an ambitious new shared world project that aims to combine fan fiction and blockchain technology. Solarius bills itself as an example of the block punk genre, which is similar to cyberpunk, but with a more neutral attitude toward technology and a more optimistic attitude about the future. Blockpunk explores the ways that blockchain technology and artificial intelligence might lead to a more equitable and decentralized future, and Solarius aims to put those principles into practice by blurring the line between creators and fans. Anyone can apply to join the Solarius community, and those community members are encouraged to contribute fiction, art, video, or music to the project. The community then votes on which of those contributions to canonize, and works that are canonized become a permanent part of the Solarius world, with blockchain technology ensuring that the work will continue to exist in its original form in perpetuity. In that way, Solarius aims to avoid the sorts of constant retcons and reboots that have roiled other fan communities in recent years. The world of Solarius is a high-tech future in which colorful factions such as Vindix, Rattlers, Stargazers, and Chemix battle over the proper relationship between humanity and AI, and how it all plays out will be entirely up to the community. Authors such as Stephen Barnes, Tanana Reeve Dew, Rich Larson, and David Wellington are already involved. And if you want to throw your hat into the ring, you can find out more over at Solarius.network. So that's C-E-L-L-A-R-I-U-S dot network. I also highly recommend checking out the Solarius 2018 reveal trailer, which features some very cool animation and sound design. All right, so now let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Paul Melko. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, David. Okay, so in this book you write, I grew up in a trailer park very similar to the one in Fallow Earth. We never did come across an alien, as shown here, though the people aren't too far from the truth. So I was wondering if you could just talk about what that was like growing up and what those people were like. Yeah, I grew up in Delaware, Ohio, which is uh, just a small town um, north of Columbus. So um, hometown of Rutherford B. Hayes. Um, that's the name of our high school, too. Uh, but uh, yeah, I grew up um, next to the Olentangy River, which features in the story. I grew up in a uh, trailer park, which was out in the country. Um, we were right next to the train tracks. Um, it ran right by the back of the trailer every night, every day. Um, uh, there were cornfields. There were, it was just, it was very isolated. Um, but the people there were, 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 were nice people. And, uh, uh, we weren't super well off. We weren't super, um, uh, uh, rich or had a lot of things, but, uh, um, it was, it was a content childhood at that time. I mean, so in the story, there's kind of some nasty bully kind of characters. Were those, uh, were there people like that around? Um, there, not necessarily, but there were events there that were ominous. Uh, the, the trailer next to us burned down and, and that, um, 
event is uh, uh, very, very etched on my mind as a child. It, it kept me up for, for months. Uh, I must have been um, uh, five or six at the time. And uh, uh, that just... Um, was 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 it was horrifying at the time i remember coming outside of the trailer and our uh trash cans had melted from the heat of the trailer burning next to us um and then uh i remember learning to ride a bike and uh, this may not seem ominous now but back then it uh i i rode from the top of the hill and, and it was all gravel there was no pavement so i managed to draw ride my bike on the first day that i learned how to ride down that hill on gravel Oh man. And and uh it was uh it was horrifying and yet exhilarating at the same time. Uh, uh, but uh so there wasn't well, you, any you didn't fall over. Or... I did not, but uh it, my parents ye- running after me uh yelling so, <laughs> uh, probably thought that I had. Uh so there were uh, not necessarily ominous or or dangerous people, but there were certainly um interesting uh uh things that happened. Did they ever find out what had caused that fire? No, no, not that I know of. Um, and we the the um, trailer caught on fire, and our my mother sent us immediately down to a friend of ours, and we just stayed there, and we didn't learn anything. And it was, uh, what's going on? What's going on? We just never learned anything of, of what happened. Even on the day of, we were very uh, sheltered from that, and they didn't want us to know anything, or they didn't tell us, or they didn't think to tell us anything. And so uh, uh, I never learned. And so how did you discover science fiction? You had an uncle who gave you some Heinlein books, is that right? That's right. I was uh I must have been uh 11 and for my birthday he gave me two Heinlein books, uh Have Spacesuit Will Travel and The Rolling Stones. And uh I had never read a whole lot of science fiction before that. I might have picked up some of the Asimov's YA stuff, but really I hadn't read much of anything up to that point. And uh, Uncle George and Aunt Mikey, uh, they were the the um, the relatives who gave me the the books. And uh, uh, Have Spacesuit Will Travel, um, a classic Heinlein YA, a mother thing comes and uh, uh, who's the main character? I don't remember. Uh, he wins a spacesuit from a from a for for um, writing a, a jingle for a soap soap uh, commercial, and. Um, the the thing in there that that really I mean it blew me away was that he calculated um, the distance to to Pluto or the speed they were going or he, he calculated something on the slide rule and I'm like it blew my mind that that was possible that you could actually calculate something um, I didn't realize that it was possible and uh, the idea that uh, anybody if they had the right information, could plug it into a, a device and get uh, useful information out of it. It was it was it was mind blowing. I uh, I think it's the thing that influenced me most in my education and what I wanted to be. I studied uh, engineering, uh, which is a problem solving uh, uh, science, um, and I think that that its roots and came from from that particular book. Loved it. Now, were there other people in your neighborhood who were reading science fiction, or was this sort of just something you were doing on your own? Uh, uh, not very many people were were reading science fiction. Uh, Delaware, Ohio had um, three places to buy books. There was the Little Professor Bookstore. Um, there was a 
place called The New Shop, which sold magazines, pornography, uh, cigarettes, and science fiction books. And then there was uh, Brad's Bookshelf, uh, which was a used bookstore that sold comics and uh, used books. And um, really, that's about all I needed. Uh, but um, I can't remember any of my friends really reading a lot as much science fiction as I did. A few of them did. And there were a number of friends in high school who collected comic books. And I did that as well. Um, but uh, there weren't a whole lot of people who were perusing the same shelves I was perusing. And how about in college? Did that change at all? Or were you still talking? Were you, did you have friends who were into science fiction? Maybe. I mean, I was studying engineering. So there were, there were some people who, who had uh, uh, read the Heinlein books and, and other things. But, uh, you know, um, I can't say that there were a whole lot. Uh, and that was before, uh, that was, you know, just at the very start of the internet. So um, it was kind of isolating not to have, be able to talk about those sort of things. There were a few people that, that uh, did share my interest in um, some of the more popular things like Hitchhiker's Guide. I could find people who had read those books um, and uh, certainly knew people who had seen all the Star Wars movies and things like that. But um, going in depth to the type of reading I did in science fiction, I don't think there was really anyone. But um, my uncle George and Aunt Mikey, who gave me the first books, um, they had shelves of science fiction books in in their uh, basement. And I have shelves of science fiction books in my basement now. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, so I think collecting and uh, reading lots of books, I, I learned from them. There were a few there was a, a, a one person that I knew uh, who read. He had shelves and shelves of books, and I borrowed quite a quite a few from him as well. Um, and uh, but I don't remember having you know in depth conversations about the books. Yeah. Well, so I gather that your college experience was uh, somewhat stressful, just based on you say uh, your story. Death of the Egg King draws on my emotional state <laughs> during my time in graduate school at the University of Michigan. Yep. So uh, I, uh, after I got my uh, bachelor's degree, I went and um, to the University of Michigan to get a master's degree. I was planning to get a PhD, but uh, uh, as often happens, I realized as I was getting my master's, that's about all I wanted to do. Um, you know, there's, I'm sure people, uh, you know, I'm not unique, but uh, you reach a point in your education where you realize. I've reached the limit of what I can possibly understand. Uh, I remember a particular class, uh, matrix ma mathematics class, where I'm like, I have no idea. I could spend all my the rest of my life trying to understand what's going on here, uh, and it just I just realized it was not for me. Uh, it's just this, um, and that's a that's a tough feeling to to get. You know, when you when you've up to that point, everything has been you know, I can understand this if I try. I can I can figure this out, but. Uh, yeah, that, uh, there's a, some um, struggle there. And uh, graduate school was not particularly fun for me. But, uh, uh, you know, uh, I came out of it. And that's when I immediately after that, I, I married my wife and uh, went off and uh, went to Pittsburgh, which uh, was a turning point for my writing and also for my uh, um, uh, finding other people who had the same passion for science fiction as I did. Well, right, because you joined this group, the Pittsburgh World Rights. That's right. Uh, Mary Soon Lee in Pittsburgh had moved to Pittsburgh around the same time I had. 
her husband was at uh, Carnegie Mellon and um, she was wanted to start a writer, writer's workshop. And so um, um, she found me and a, a couple of other um, writers as well, Tim Isaias, uh Barton Paul Levinson, uh, and a few other people um, who um, were, you know, at the start of their careers as writers. And really it was, uh, it was uh, awesome to be in, in that group. Uh, Mary Soon Lee is an excellent, excellent writer, a great craftsman uh, when it comes to, to writing. Uh, Tim as well is uh, uh, so meticulous in editing a manuscript. It really was, um, it was exactly what I needed at, at that time to, to grow my own craft. And uh, I, I look very, I look on fondly to to the time I spent with that group. Now, had you been writing all along, or was that some? Did you start writing science fiction around that time, or how'd that happen? I had started writing uh, science fiction in high school for a creative writing class that I had taken, and it was a horrible story. It was called uh, "The Opal Owl." It was a, it was a, it was a uh, superhero story about a. Um, a superhero who lived in Los Angeles where I had never been. So I had no idea what I was writing about. And uh, it was a really bad story. Did it seem but, yeah, a lot I, like Pittsburgh? Or? <laughs> no, I, I wrote that in high school. So, oh, uh, so a lot like Ohio. Or, uh... <laughs> what I imagined a, a city would be like. And of course, I was totally wrong. Um, but uh, yeah, that was my first story. And she encouraged us all to uh, submit it. And I submitted it to Asimov Science Fiction. And got a nice rejection letter a few months later. And then, so then, did you submit other stuff? I guess, or like nothing in high school, but I started submitting in college a couple of stories here and there. Um, I might have gotten an acceptance, but in one of the college magazines, I don't remember. It was if I did, it was nothing significant. But it wasn't until Pittsburgh where I started submitting on a regular basis, um, mainly because everybody else in the world writes uh, was doing the same thing, and. Um, gotten to uh, the habit of writing and submitting. And, and I think I started to have some uh, beginning success back then, smaller, small press uh, submissions that, that sold and, and did well. Like a bunch of stuff in Tailbones, right? That's right. Um, Patrick and Hannah Swenson were, were uh, uh, um, very receptive to my things early on. And uh, uh, they, they published a number of my early so uh, stories. Uh, I think a total of six stories have end ended up in Tailbones, um, which I thought was a really cool magazine. Um, they they published some good stuff. Mm -hmm. And it looks like you you belong to a lot of writers' workshops. In, in addition to the World Rights, we have the Semi-Omniscience Write Shop, the Million Monkeys in Blue Heaven, you all list. Yeah, I uh, when I left Pittsburgh, I was at, I was in Pittsburgh for five years. Um, I we moved to Chicago. I could not find a writers' workshop, so I created one in the same um, vein as uh, uh, Mary uh, Soon Lee ran in Pittsburgh, and that was the Semi Omniscience, uh, the Simios, and uh, that was another good group. Um, I was having more success at that point, and um, um, I continue to learn. Uh, probably the, the 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 group that influenced me the most after the uh, world rights was uh, Blue Heaven, which was the novel workshop that um, Charles uh, um, Coleman Finley created uh, to do novel workshopping. Uh, as he said, there there were lots of short story workshops, but there weren't really any novel writing workshops. 
And he got a group of people together from all over the country who um, were at that point. They had not necessarily published a first novel yet. I think maybe one or two of us had. And uh, he wanted to build a workshop that helped write novels because there just weren't any out there. And so we met for a week on Kelly's Island in Lake Erie and uh, um, figured out how to workshop novels. And um, if you look at the novels that came out of there, all my novels were workshopped at a blue heaven. Um, and if you look at all the other writers who were there, I think a, a phenomenal percentage of them ended up publishing the the novels that they workshopped at blue heaven. Um, I mean, it's, it's phenomenal when you look at the list. And your first novel was Singularity's Ring, which was uh, expanded from a short story called Singletons in Love. Um, can you tell us how that story came about? Uh, that's right. Um, nearly all my, uh, I think the first two novels have been, had their genesis in a short story that I, that I wrote for something else. And Singletons in Love, um, Lou Anders, um, he's the, uh, he is or was the editor at Pyre. Uh, he, before he was that editor, he was shopping uh, around this idea for an anthology. Um, it was called, he had the idea, it was called Live Without a Net, and it was going to be, or Live Without a Net, depending on how you pronounce it, how you, either way. Um, and it, the idea was, give me stories in which the internet isn't what we think it's going to be, that you're living without that, that network. Something happens in the future. And uh, it was weird. He told me the idea. I'd met him at Worldcon, at this Worldcon, might have been San Antonio. And he just told me about this idea. And as soon as he said it, I had the idea for Singletons in Love. Um, so instead of having a silicon network, a machine-based network, we had networks of humans. The idea that humans were genetically engineered to share thoughts and to form, even though they were individually humans, they formed a composite uh, being. And... Uh, in Singletons in Love, I had six teenagers coming of age who were actually acting as a single entity. So six humans as one. And uh, some of them had specialized skills. Um, some of them uh, were strong. Some of them were, were quick. Some of them were uh, mathematically inclined. Um, but instead of a, an internet, they had a network uh, between themselves. Uh, and so that's one of the few times where the story idea was just instantly with me. And... Uh, uh, yeah, it was it was awesome to write. And yeah, and the, the teenagers in this group, they communicate with each other using chemicals and pheromones. Could you talk a little bit more about that? That's correct. Uh, so I wanted. Um, so, again, uh, my background is engineering, so uh, I like to engineer these problems. And I, I, I said, well, they need to have some way to communicate. I didn't want telepathy. I didn't want um, something um, that had been done before. Uh, uh, quite a bit. And so I thought, well, let's make it a, a chemical, uh, method that has its own drawbacks. And so they, they produce, uh, chemical memories, uh, and then pass them, actually physically touch each other, touch each other's hands and pass the memory to one another. And, uh, um, uh, not necessarily feasible, uh, with, from anything I've read, but, but it gave me a, a, uh, a different type of network. So there are 
delays in in the, there's there's there because it's you, they have to actually touch each other when someone becomes isolated there's problems when when they can't um um get feedback there's problems and uh, i started playing with this idea of consensus since they're a group of six people they have to reach consensus and so they they can reach consensus and they can reach uh, ideas that are more complex than an individual human can mate, make, but it takes them a longer time because they have to pass the information like a like a vortex around the the the, the network connection that they have. Yeah, and I don't know what the state of the science was when you wrote this story, but I've certainly seen headlines recently where it seems like don't they take memories from one rat and stick it into another rat, and then that rat can run the maze and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, they think they've done that at the time. They had done that with flatworms, or you know, they split a flatworm, and if if the flatworm had learned it, both of the split flatworms could do it. Yeah, so I mean, there's some precedent for that, but uh, I made a lot of stuff up. <laughs> Uh, the characters talk about going from first state to fourth state. What does that mean exactly? Um, uh, I think uh, that because of the complexity of of their gen- genetic engineering, um, uh, their their growth to independence was very well um, monitored by by the elder um, entities in this or in this in this world i've posited a world where most of the singletons people who who are not composite groups have vanished from the earth in some sort of accident and um so it's it's very fragile the the civilization that that um these um multiples these composites have created and they have um they are pushing the genetic um, limits of, you know, of their, of their society by making larger and larger composite groups, which are sometimes unstable. Um, and so they're very concerned about main, maintaining the stability of these larger groups. I think, uh, um, the particular, uh, composite that's the main character of my, of my story there, um, was a six, which is the highest that had ever been made. There's, um, I write another story about a seven, which ultimately fragmented because they could not uh, maintain stability of, of of the group. There was just psychosis or or you know other things that caused the um, the uh, entity to to break up. So there, the the society is very concerned about um, the progression of both morally and and physically and and emotionally and mentally of each composite. Mm-hmm. You know, I went through a period where I read all the, I think all the Theodore Sturgeon short stories, and he just had lots and lots of stories about this idea of the gestalt of the, a bunch of individuals forming something greater than the sum of their parts. The best known of them is, is more than human. I was just curious if that was a influence on you at all. Uh, I had read that after, uh, 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 writing this first story. So, uh, no, I, I read less Sturgeon than, than I should have, I think as a, as a child, uh, what I read most of was, uh, um, Philip Jose Farmer, Heinlein, um, Harry Harrison, um, um, Lawrence Watt Evans. Uh, but for some reason, uh, really not a whole lot of Sturgeon. And I think that, that I think I missed out. Uh, I, I read a number of his short stories when I was, um, older um and uh i liked liked everything i read mm-hmm. well you mentioned heinlein i mean one of my favorite heinleins is tunnel in the sky 
And the story Strength Alone reminds me a little bit of that in that you have these um, these characters that are kind of on a, a camping expedition that's going to test their survival skills and something goes wrong and it ends up being much more serious than they were expecting it to be. Yes. I don't uh, I don't remember Tunnel in the Sky. Uh, well, yeah, so I mean, there's a bunch of... Um, it's like the Boy Scouts, basically, and they're supposed to go through this gate, this, you know, a teleporter gate, and they're going to be on this alien planet for... Uh, a week or something and they have to survive. Uh, but then there's a supernova that knocks out the relay station and they end up permanently stuck on this uh, alien planet and they have to build a whole society. Yep. I, uh, I uh, have a, I'm a big fan of, uh, of survivor stories uh, and the idea of trying to rebuild society after cataclysm. Uh, one of the books that I'm, I'm working on right now is, uh, is about a, um, a office building that suddenly gets uh, transported to a to another universe, a, a a jungle universe, and so you have, you know, all these people that are that are uh, typically in an office. You've got a security guards, you've got uh, upper management, you've got middle management, you've got marketing people, and suddenly uh, they go from a business relationship to a survival relationship, and uh, uh, it's fun. Uh, um, positing what's going to happen when when various groups of people are forced to rebuild or try to maintain a, a society that has no outside support. Uh, I love stories like that. Yeah, it's cool. Does that have a, a name, that project? Uh, the Tower of Not Earth. Uh, it looks like you had a bunch of stuff that you were working on that I'm not sure if it ever came out. I came across references to Sargasso that you were working on with Ben Rosenbaum and uh, the Cankerman story. Um, are those in, in progress still? Yep, still in progress in some way, shape, or form. Uh, the story with uh, Ben Rosen that Ben Rosenbaum and I are working on, uh, we wrote a draft and uh, I workshopped it at Blue Heaven a couple of years ago. Uh, it's a... Uh, uh, middle grade uh, dystopian uh, uh, near future uh, science fiction story about a uh, micro nation that exists a techno technocracy that sit sits in the um, in an oil rig in the Gulf of Mexico and they are a micro nation that gets uh, they think they're they're independent but they get uh, purchased by a large conglomerate an Australian one it's a post capitalistic uh, um, world uh, dystopian uh, situation where they are idealists and have to face um, a capitalist, uh, a new capitalist master. Um, the technology that we're looking at there is um, um, things can be forged. Um, you can build things atom by atom, and uh, um, it's easy to you know build a cup of coffee or build a boat or build whatever you need. But the problem is that. Um, um, these big corporations own all the the copyright to these um, um, maps or these forge directions, and so they can't you can't just do that. You have to pay for it. And so these uh, these island uh, the people on the island are are idealists. They they publish all their um, uh, fab maps for free. Uh, they're uh, the the parents of the two main characters. Um, are you know a little bit radical in terms of what they're doing, uh, and there are these sargassos of of displaced um, uh, people from flooded countries who just uh, go from um, 
location to location in the ocean and form um, ad hoc sargassos of of fabbed um, uh, boats and ships and, and and floating platforms. And so that's the world that we're playing with. And it's a it's the story of the the two uh, children of uh, of this um, who are uh, you know. Uh, 12 or 13 who are just growing up in this in this rather chaotic situation uh, it's a story that i i really enjoy and i will we'll, we'll, we're continuing to write it you know i um a couple months ago i interviewed this guy joe quirk he's the head of the seasteading institute it's funded by peter Thiel, and it's uh they're trying to mm-hmm. do that to build these you know floating cities things i don't know if you um if you've looked into that the, like the real world efforts to do that kind of thing at all uh, not a whole lot. Um, I've I've looked into micronations and the and the laws regarding that and and the ideas behind that. I've and uh, that's that's something that's always been intriguing to me and 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 the idea that uh, um, we would uh, populate the seas. Um, as an engineer, I like uh, the ideas of uh, macro engineering uh, our global problems. And so uh, one of the things that I have the parent. The parents of these two kids do is that this they they make money by um, by trying to stop hurricanes from forming uh, through uh, global engineering projects, which um, I think is is something that's pretty cool. Yeah, um, actually, I, I there was a book called um, The Brothers Vonnegut, where uh, you know Kurt Vonnegut, his brother, was trying to do that. Uh, (laughs) dumping dry ice into hurricanes, I think, to try to redirect the hurricanes, which actually sort of works, but not, not enough to really make it worth doing in the end. Uh, Yeah. The, uh, the idea that we had uh, come up with was, uh, huge, uh, well, they have, so the, the, the idea here is they can build, you know, small uh, robots or small things and lots of them because they have this tech, this fab technology. Uh, and so what they do is they, um, you, build bunches of small um, f- floating um, pumps, water pumps that pump cold water up from the depths of the ocean to try to, to um, uh, reduce the, uh, you know, the, the energy inside hurricanes. Um, so that was the idea that we, we had, we had come up with. Yeah. So that's really cool. And then how about the Cankerman story? Is that, what's the status on that? So uh, the, one of the stories in the collection uh, Ten Sigmas is uh, what? Um, um, it's in there, isn't it? Oh, no, it I don't think it is. I think it came out after the book. Oh, it did. Uh, so that that ended up in uh, Tailbones. Uh, it was um, Cankerman's War. And uh, so I had read all the Flashman series. Have you read those? I have not. No, I've, I've heard they're really good. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a it's a it's a series of of historical novels where Flashman is a total cad, uh, just a horrible person, but he ends up being in the in the right place at the wrong time, I guess, uh, and he ends up at all these historical events um, as an anti-hero who appears as a hero, um, and so I wanted to do the same thing, and so Cankerman became my Flashman, um, um, but instead of historical set pieces. It's it would be um, science fictional set pieces, and uh, so uh, um, it's just uh, uh, I put him in any all these uh, you know I, I have a situation where he he faces off against a a honor an honor Arrington um, type person from uh, those series or um, the giant tree ships from uh, 
Dan Simmons, uh, just various bizarre um, science fictional uh, set pieces that he sort of just fumbles his way through and end up, ends up being a little better off, but sometimes worse off than, than he started. And uh, the uh, Cankerman's twin is <laughs> him <laughs> heading back to his, uh, his home world. Um, his, his father owns it, is, has some, has a little bit of nobility, uh, some noble titles. And apparently, uh, uh, Cankerman's twin, he was born with a, uh, a twin, um, in his, um, uh, at the same time, which, uh, was not viable, but his father kept it. And so his father is, uh, uh trying to, to steal Cankerman's body and put his twin's brain in it. <laughs> it's just, uh, you know, ridiculous, but, but fun to write. Well, yeah, and you said that it's comedic, and I think that's really good because there's just not enough humorous science fiction, uh, in my opinion. I agree. Uh, there's it's it's rare to find uh, you know really funny um, um, science fiction. Um, you know, of course, everybody points to Hitchhiker's Guide, uh, but uh, you know, and some of the um, Discworld stuff and um, things like that. But yeah, you're right. There's not enough comedic science fiction. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, so getting back to these stories, could you talk about the process of how you took Singleton's in Love and turned it into your first novel, um, Singularity's Ring? Yeah. So uh, I wrote uh, Singleton's in Love and I uh, had some uh, good success with it. Uh, it was well liked. Um, and I had this group of six characters. Each one was you know, unique and yet they were part of the whole. And so I started writing short stories about each character. And so the second story was Strength Alone, uh, which ended up selling to Asimov's and um, was uh, ended up at the end of the year. I think it was uh, one of the top three and it's in the reader's choice. Um, and that's a funny story. I want to come back to that. Um, and so I started writing a, a short story about each of the characters in the um, in the sextet, and uh, each one was interesting. And, and by the time I got to the second one, I realized that I had a novel, and so um, that became um, the first novel, uh, Singularity's Ring, that I I wrote. And uh, the way the novel is structured is that each uh, major section is from the point of view of one of uh, the members of the composite group. And then the final chapter is told from their omniscient, sort of semi-omniscient point of view, um, which was fun to do and, and interesting and unique, I think, and, and what I was doing. Um, so uh, I guess Singularity's Ring in that sense is a little bit of a fix-up novel in that uh, each, two of those sections were, were priorly um, published. but uh, um, And then at that point, it, it became, it was more, I was I was writing the novel after those two sections were written. Well, I say this a lot, and I feel like uh, fix-up novels kind of get a bad rap, but I really like them, and I feel like they just have more texture and more. And I like short stories just in general, but that th they don't feel they don't have just the, such a predictable, you know, through line. You know that they they feel a little little bit more complex and a little bit more like real life, and that they just can can some, go in off off in sort of odd directions and circle back and so on. I agree. I, I think that um, um, short fiction, um, you sometimes get uh, that, as you say, the complexity that you might not um, um, see in a, in, a, in, a, in a fiction that that's um, um, meant to be a novel from the start. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not sure why people like to say it's a fix-up novel and, and then maybe uh, scoff at it a little bit. But uh, those, that, 
doing a short story first is is the is the ability to to test these ideas out and see if they're going to make sense as a as a longer fiction. Um, uh, so yeah, I think my first two novels were both started as short stories. Walls of the Universe started out as you know the Walls of the Universe novella. Um, and that one though, you took you sort of the um, the novella became sort of the first part of the novel, and then you extend, expanded. You know, then you created more events that came after the the initial novella. Yeah, the Walls of the Universe was originally a novel, and uh, I wrote the novel, and then it never went anywhere. And then, as I was thinking about it, it became the novella. So I I took the novel that I first wrote and shrunk it and ripped it apart and took everything out of there that was in any way, shape, or form not interesting to me anymore. And that became the novella. And then I, to, to make the novel, I uh, expanded it again. So yeah, it was, uh, it's like a, an accordion. <laughs> it grows, it shrinks, it grows. Um, but yes, so it was a novel, then it was a novella, then it became a novel again. And it's terrific. I mean, Strength Alone and um, The Walls of the Universe uh, are two stories that just particularly stand out to me from this collection is just being fantastic. And um, when you, I'm not sure how much to say about it without giving too much away, but when you talk about, I don't know, how much do you usually say about it when you describe it? Do you give away Which, any of the, uh, the walls of the universe? Walls of the universe. Uh, I usually, I usually talk about what's in the novella um, and, and not what's in the, in the rest of the novel. Okay. We can talk about the, the trick uh, yeah. it's played on. Yeah, be yes. uh, because yeah, it, so so the the premise is that there's this uh, uh, this this character living on a farm, and a duplicate version of him appears and says, "Hey, I have this machine that can transport you from parallel universe to par parallel universe. It's really cool. You should try it out." And then he tries it out and discovers that it only goes you can't one get, way. You, it only goes one way. You can't get back, and so he the, he's uh, stranded himself, and this duplicate is uh, is taken over his life. Um, yeah. Uh Exactly right. I, and I, <laughs> people uh, uh, very, it resonates with a, with a lot of readers, the idea of John Prime versus John Rayburn, who are effectively the same person with just slightly differences in how they, how they were raised. Um, uh, they were two universes that are nearly identical. One creates a, a, uh, a more, I don't, don't want to say evil, but certainly pragmatic, uh, more uh, desperate yeah, uh, version of the, Yes, opportunistic as the same, same, but genetically the same, not more similar than twins are. Yeah. Um, and so then you wrote a sequel to that as well. Yeah. Uh, Walls of the Universe was my second novel. And then my third novel was The Broken Universe, which was a sequel to, to that. Um, yeah. Uh -huh. And it was, uh, it was optioned by the, the Shrek producer? Yes, that's right. Um, Walls of the Universe, uh, when the when the novel came out, it got a starred review in Publishers Weekly, and apparently uh, that is one of the the review magazines that um, Hollywood uh, producers will will watch for new material. And so, within a week, I got calls from two or three or four producers, um, or my agent got calls. And, uh, that there was interest in, in, in the, in the, um, uh, in the book for movie rights. And, uh, we ended up, um, 
talking at, to to several uh, producers, and uh, we finally talked to um, the the producers who did uh, the Shrek movies. They do a number. They have a production company, and uh, they they optioned uh, Walls of the Universe um, uh, for for its uh, movie rights, which is pretty cool. Pretty cool thing to happen. Um, but uh, you know, um, since then I've heard. Uh, Oh yeah, they're working on a script. Uh, yeah, nothing's gonna happen. No, they're working on a script, or you know, it's just really uh, found money. I think the Hollywood money is found money um, uh, that you should never rely on, and uh, you know, it's 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 cool for it to have happened, but uh, you know, I doubt if anything will ever happen. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I really enjoyed the story. And Parallel Worlds, it's one of my favorite tropes in science fiction. I talk a lot on the show about how Roger Zelazny's Amber series was my favorite series growing up. Yes, Zelazny, uh, Amber series, and Philip Jose Farmer, World of Tears, are the two series that are uh, two Parallel World series that are most influential on me. Um, I read, uh, again, both of those series are the series that I bought at the uh, Little Professor bookstore in Delaware, Ohio. Um, and uh, read them multiple times. Um, the World of Tears, I don't know if you've read that or not. No, uh, I, I've just heard of it because it was a big influence on the Amber books. And so I've always wanted to read it, but I, I still haven't read it. Uh, it's, it's, it, um, so, so if you look at the, if you re- read, read both of them, you can see how they sort of influence each other. The Farmer books, the World of Tears books, is more engineering in terms of, how someone built these universes, whereas you know Zelazny has sort of a magical what does he have that giant uh, maze that sort of controls yeah, everything the, the pattern yeah and so uh, sort of different ideas behind um, um, how this happens and so I was sort of sort of gravitated towards the engineering uh, ideas and that's my background um, but they have very sim- a lot of similarities there's like a a ruling family or a series of lords who uh, uh, rule these different uh, universes um, and uh, have adventures through them uh, so very similar series uh, and I think they were in communications Elasney and farmer were in communication as they wrote these wrote these uh, both those series yeah that's my understanding I think that Zelazny blurbed the first world of tears book if i'm remembering that right it's uh it's uh, worth finding and uh and reading um the uh it's it's an excellent series yeah okay so speaking of engineering i, I was just uh I, I was looking you up on twitter to see what people had said about you and i came across this uh, tobias Buckel thing where he says <laughs> Uh, this is about the show the, the Walking Dead. He says, Paul Melko once told me, give me a backhoe and a few contractors and I can solve every problem they face on that show. Uh, yeah, 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 I, yeah, The Walking Dead, it's super frustrating because uh, it feels like it's just an engineering problem to be solved. Um, and uh, that zombies, zombies walk in a straight line. <laughs> so all you have to do is build a trench and have a crooked bridge and they will never get to you. I mean, it's just like, that's it. That's the solution. Um, I'm, I'm sure it's more. And, and of course, as The Walking Dead progressed, it wasn't the zombies that were the problem. It was yeah, other humans, uh, of course. But uh, in, the, in the beginning, you know, it's, it's like, it's an engineering problem. You know, zombies are an engineering problem, especially slow zombies. Um, and uh, it, it was very frustrating to watch it and not say, come on, people, just fix the problem. <laughs> 
Well, one of the best suggestions I ever heard was Max Brooks said that you should move into a house and then just destroy all the stairs. You know, just have a like a rope ladder or something that you raise and lower, and then you're 100 percent safe from zombies. Yep, if there are slow zombies, but if they're the faster, smarter zombies, like maybe from uh, what's the one? What's that movie with Will Smith? Uh, uh, I am Legends. Yes. Yeah, so uh, if they got faster zombies, then you might be in trouble. Yeah, or those uh, World War Z zombies, the uh, the movie the, version where they build the giant like columns right. in the sky. Yeah. All right. Got to watch out. For slow zombies. Yeah. Slow slow zombies though. I think you're right. You know, just climb a tree or build a treehouse. <laughs> Um, actually, speaking of Tobias Bakel, I came across a reference to the Bakel chemical job on St. Thomas in your story, The Teosynth War. Which I, <laughs> I don't know if you remember. Uh, I assume that's a I Tobias Bakel reference. It is. Uh, so you know, so uh, uh, Toby and I, of course, were at uh, Blue Heaven together. He's another of the Ohio mafia of science fiction writers. Um, and uh, we have workshopped, uh, you know, I've uh, quite a bit together. He he would come down to Columbus, and we would uh, do short fiction um, uh, um, critiquing. And he brought Crystal Rain to I think Crystal Rain to the first um, Blue Heaven. I had brought um, Walls of the Universe to the first Blue Heaven. Um, so yeah, so uh, we we have critiqued each other's stuff quite a bit. Yeah, um, Crystal and- Rain being his first novel. Yep, Crystal Rain was his first novel, which was awesome, awesome, great novel. Yeah, um, I, I really liked the story of the Teosynth War too. Could you talk a little bit about that one? Uh, yeah, so I had uh, this is another one that went to Lou Anders. Uh, he had another anthology. He asked me to submit something for it, um, and I'm going to draw a blank on which. What was the name of that? Oh, Future Shocks, I think is what it was. And uh, I don't remember the theme, but I had been reading uh, Jared Diamond's uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel, which uh, talks about how society um, evolved in the Fertile Crescent and didn't evolve in other locations, mainly because of the availability of domesticatable grains and animals. And uh, his argument, of course, is that um, you're not going to have the evolution of great civilizations in uh, North and South America, because there's very few grains that can be domesticated across uh, going up and down in latitudes, and there's very few pack animals. You basically have the llama and uh, the alpaca and um, um, really nothing else to domesticate. And so that's why um, the Fertile Crescent uh, uh, it was the source of civilization. They have uh, you know, nine different grains that they could use and, uh, horses, cows, and, uh, pigs and sheep, uh, goats all in one location. Um, and so, um, uh, Teosinte War was, uh, postulated the idea of using parallel universes to, to do social experiments. And so somebody wanted to test if, uh, civilization could have been started in North and South America or Central America. And so they use parallel universes to test the theory. Basically, instead of, you know, spinning up a virtual server or computer, you sir, you spin up a new universe and test your theories by, um, you know, changing, tweaking parameters. In this case, they, um, they, uh, provided a domesticatable, uh, corn earlier in, 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 um, 
the evolution of society in, in America, then it actually showed up and provided them with a, a grain that would allow civilization to, to grow faster in the hopes of seeing a, a civilization grow to, to match the European civilization at the same time. Right. So that when the Europeans arrive, they don't just completely overrun the continent. And I thought the way the story ultimately develops without giving too much away was really interesting. I was just curious, was that all stuff you came up with on your own or were you kind of bouncing ideas off other people or? I, I, I don't remember at the time who I was talking to. I don't know if that was a world right story or later, but um, um, I, it, it, it was all out of uh, Jared Diamond's book. I mean, I just love that book and wanted to, uh, uh, write a, a, sh a short story that that played with those ideas and of course i love the love parallel universe stories so combine those two and that's what you get <laughs> and the idea that somebody that scientists would would uh you know exploit parallel universes ultimately you know that ends up in walls of the universe as well yeah there was one detail this is kind of an incidental detail in the story but the students all have kind of like a, a an ai facebook kind of thing implanted in their heads where um you know if you're talking to someone and you're annoying them it kind of gives you a little <laughs> message saying you know this person doesn't want to talk to you and that seems like a really useful thing that might exist in the future that each person has their own little ai and the ais are talking to each other and just smoothing over um you know social interactions and misunderstandings and things um so i just thought that was interesting yeah that was a probably a throwaway detail i i'm not even sure i remember writing that <laughs> <laughs> um well yeah you should go read this story it's pretty good you, I think you would enjoy it <laughs> hey i wanted to come back to uh, uh strength alone if you don't mind oh yeah sure so uh this is actually a funny story that i like to tell uh strength alone as i mentioned ended up um being in the top three, I think it was third or fourth, maybe in the Asimov's Reader's Poll. And so um, the editor, uh, Sheila Williams, um, it might have been at the Nebulas. We were in Chicago. She invited my wife and I to um, the, the the breakfast uh, that they were giving the awards away at. And so uh, Gardner Dozois was there and um, might have been Tad Williams, I'm not sure. A couple other writers were there, and uh, she had asked the hotel, uh, "Do you have a, a nice room for us to um, to have this this award, this this literary award breakfast?" And so the the hotel said, "Yes, we have this great room. Uh, it's the library." I said, "Well, perfect." Oh, wow. uh, so we uh, had breakfast served in the library room, which was upstairs from the main um, uh, restaurant, and it was really nice. It had uh, shelves of built-in bookshelves of of books on three of the three of the four walls and uh you know it was very nice uh the awards were given out and then as we were um you know standing around somebody goes over to the bookshelf and starts perusing the books as you were you know you put a bunch of writers in a room with the bookshelves we're going to start perusing the books so what did they, what the room designers had done is they had cut every single book in half so that they would fit on the shelf. The shelves were not full-size shelves. The shelves were smaller than that, and they couldn't fit books on the shelves if they were full-size. They would stick off the edge. So they had taken a buzzsaw or a jigsaw and cut every single book in half to fit them on the shelf. And so <laughs> we remember the look of horror <laughs> as we start pulling <laughs> the books off 
the shelves and we realize these are all all these books have been been murdered you cannot read you can read a book maybe that's been split in half but you cannot read a book that's been you at least start the book right but you cannot read a book that's been cut in half like that and so we're looking oh my god they've murdered all these books but then as you know because of that crew and the and the dark humor that they have uh, we start listing the titles of the books that, that were on the shelf and so someone says oh look uh, a tale of one city <laughs> or uh fahrenheit 256 <laughs> Look at this book over here, or uh, oh, oh, look, the One Tower from Tolkien, and so it it ended up in a uh, in a long set of uh, punning uh, jokes about all the uh, half books that were on the shelf. But uh, uh, I, I will not forget uh, the 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 horror followed by the uh, the 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 humor of of all the murdered, massacred books on that bookshelf. Yeah, no, I mean, because, yeah, just as writers, we just have this more reverential attitude toward books, but then a lot of people just see them as decorative. And, you know, you can go to these stores and they have all the books arranged by the color of the cover because that's what people care about. You know, they're like, oh, I want blue books for this, you know, this room or whatever. And, uh, yeah, it's the world is a sick place. Yeah, there is. A, yeah, there, you're right. Uh, and I think it goes back to my Uncle George and Aunt Mikey, who, uh, um, you know, put that sense of reverence for for books. And uh, as I mentioned, you know, I, I grew up uh, uh, in that trailer park. We weren't particularly rich. And so uh, uh, the books that I bought are the books that I really wanted and the books that I, that I keep. A lot of those books I still have on my shelves now. Um that's I spent a lot of my paperboy and uh, money on on those books and comic books, and uh, to see them destroyed was uh, you know saddening. <laughs> yeah, well, let's move on. This is just uh, upsetting me. <laughs> too, too sad. Because <laughs> um, I also wanted to mention this story, Alien Fantasies. It's about a woman who you know some aliens have come and they're selecting particular people to come with them. And she's sure that she's going to be one of the people chosen. And I feel like probably every science fiction fan fantasizes about this, right? That if the aliens come, that they would recognize us as the, you know, the, the I don't know, the rational forward thinking people that, that deserve to, to escape the earth. Yeah. That's, uh, that story, uh, uh, set in Pittsburgh. I, I wrote it when I was working with the world rights in Pittsburgh. Um, I took a creative writing class at the university of Cincinnati and, uh, all, maybe many, uh, writing classes use the Norton Anthology. And so we had to, uh, read a number of stories from the Norton Anthology of fiction of that particular year. And, uh, of course, I read all the, the science fiction stories first. And I think the one, they had, there were two science fiction stories in there. Ursula K. Le Guin, The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelis, and, uh, Arthur C. Clarke's The Star. Then I read those first, of course. Um, but, but there were a couple other ones. Uh, the rest were all, uh, um, you know, more uh, literary fiction. But there was one particular story called um, um, Rape Fantasies, I believe is what it was called. And it sounds horrifying, but um, it was a story, I, I don't remember the author, and it was about a, a character who was such so lonely that um, she was scared of of being sexually assaulted, but Every time she worried about it, she turned the the assault into in her mind. She turned it into a romance, 
uh, just she ended up talking to to the assaulter or or, or, or the assailant, and uh, um, and it was it was ironic and you know a little bit you know sad and also you know uh, angering and and frustrating at the same time, and and so that led directly to to alien fantasies and the idea that yes everybody has this fantasy that aliens will come and they'll let you know that you're special and that uh you're going to be uh taken to um another uh world or you're going your 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 genetic um makeup is something that's important and uh so, so it's the same idea with the characters in in that particular story that I wrote that uh they were obsessed with 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 this particular with the aliens because in, in a weird way, that's not unreasonable, you know, because who's to say that aliens aren't going to show up tomorrow? I mean, that's how I kind of I, I look at it as if you're having a bad day or whatever. You know, it's like, well, the aliens could show up tomorrow. You know, you don't know they won't. <laughs> that's true. Um, I thought it was interesting how David Letterman is a character in this story. Uh, were you, I think you were watching a lot of David. You said you were watching a lot of David Letterman at the time, or something. Might have been. Um, yeah, he does a he he does a top ten list, doesn't he? In that in that series or in that book? I don't. I think you said that you wrote one, but I'm not. Sh- I don't remember it being in the actual story. Um, but he does. He did, he interviews one of the aliens. Um, That's right. And uh, <laughs> I don't know. I guess you'd watch so much David Letterman, you felt comfortable that you could capture his voice on the page, or. I I must have that was uh yeah I was in that was what uh, twenty years ago so uh, that's funny I I had not remembered that detail <laughs> yeah. there's a and uh, I think there's a as writers we put in um so this was uh something that I learned at in in Pittsburgh the idea or it might have been at Blue Heaven we talked about it too but the idea of eyeball kicks eyeball kicks being things that um you know telling details that that uh, are just uh, a kick to the eyeball, um, things that um, set the place and the and the situation, the, the atmosphere. Um, um, sometimes they're throwaway, sometimes they're integral to the plot, but uh, there's something that that um, you know just makes the uh, readers sit up and say, "Hey, oh, cool! This adds texture to this story that that wasn't there before." Yeah. Okay, so we're pretty much out of time, and I guess we already talked uh, a bit about uh, other sort of upcoming projects you have. But is there anything else you wanted to mention that you're that you're working on, or that we can look forward to seeing in the future? I think we covered uh, the two uh, two books that or three books that are in progress: Cankerman's uh, Twin and Sargasso, the collaboration with uh, Ben and I, and uh, and then the Tower of Not Earth, the uh, parallel uh, universe uh, story of of office people who end up in a in another universe. Those are the things I'm working on. Um, so yeah, I think that covers everything. Are there any short stories that you've written since then or, or uh, since this book came out or that you're, um, that you're sort of noodling around with now? Um, no, though, I think, I think, um, um, Cankerman shower came out after that. That's the first Cankerman story came out after the, um, 10 sigmas, but that's the, the last, uh, uh short story that I've had out. Um, the uh i am working on a um a novella length uh distillation of of the the tower of not earth um i wanted to make that into a uh, standalone um um novella and see uh, uh yeah, see how that turned out
Yeah, cool. So yeah, so everyone can keep an eye out for that in the future. So do you think that do you work in an uh, do you work in an office? Do you uh, do you wonder how your office would do if you were transported to a uh, a parallel world? I do work in an office, and uh, uh, so as I was uh, writing this, uh, I would often look at the people around me, and I'd look at the things around me, and say, "All right, what would I be able to do with this?" So um, uh, I work in a uh, thirty-two story office building which has a data center in it and so it has um you know failover power it could run for you know 24 or 36 hours on its own power and so you know that's what that's the type of thing that happens in the in in the book is you know there's some vestiges of civilization that remain um but um it's not going to last i mean they're going to have power for you know a short time but it's going to go away and then what are they going to do then? What are they going to have? And of course, there's a parking garage under the building. So they have cars. They have, you know, a few cars. And there's a security guard and he has a gun. He has one gun. Um, and there's um, all these computers that are going to lose their power in a few minutes or a few hours. And those are going to be useless. And uh, you have all these, you know, miscellaneous things at your desk. You know, you've got, you've got your, um, maybe you have your insulin that will last. Um, a day or two days or the medicine that you need is at home and not with you. So all these considerations were things that I was thinking about. And then what could be a weapon? Um, and uh, um, that's probably not a good thing to think about at work, but you know, I'm, uh, I was going to, I was going to say to your coworkers, know that you're working on this book about the, <laughs> the coworkers all like fighting over the one gun and stuff like that. Uh, I, I have, I have mentioned it to a couple um, and uh, you start thinking, about what is available to you to survive in a world and and you look at uh, paper cutters there you have swords in in on every floor right because you have these every, every next to every printer we have a paper cutter you know with one of those big blades um so you know always say be careful there and you lock it down when you're done but if you tear that thing off that's a sword um and then you look at uh the flag that's in the in the foyer of every building that has a giant spear at the top hmm. that's a spear you know and you start thinking ah oh, they could use that if they were if they had to they could use that and uh <laughs> there are there are weapons all over the place in our in our uh, modern office buildings so really every office should, should just make sure that they have a paper cutter just you know in case of a unplanned transportation to a parallel universe or zombie attack either one <laughs> All right, cool. So, yeah, we are all out of time. So I think we're going to have to wrap things up there. But so we've been speaking with Paul Melko. And again, this book of stories, it's called Ten Sigmas and Other Unlikelihoods. So, Paul, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, David. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Paul Melko for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to Yul Wohan and Brian Rumble, who both just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. I also want to thank Solarius for sponsoring today's show. Learn more and get involved over at Solarius.network. So again, that's C-E-L-L-A-R-I-U-S dot network. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. 
The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.